Welcome to Podcasting with the President. I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Hopi, President of Merrimack College. In this episode of Podcasting with the President, I was joined by Juliana Cohen, Assistant Professor of Health Sciences, Kyle McGinnis, Professor of Health Sciences, and April Bowling, Assistant Professor of Health Sciences. Our conversation focused on wellness for children and young adults, as well as each guest's field of research. We discussed diet, exercise, and technology, and the effects they are having on the young population today. We touched on resources that parents can utilize to support their children to eat well, sleep, and exercise. All important strategies due to the increasingly challenging world we live in today. Enjoy as we dive deep into the world of children and health. Well, folks, welcome back to the President's Podcast. I have three great guests today with me. Juliana Cohen, uh, Assistant Professor of Health Sciences, Kyle McGinnis, Professor of Health Sciences, and April Bowling, a Assistant Professor of Health Sciences. And our topic today is uh, wellness um, for children and young adults. And so I want to start the conversation with our three colleagues here, who are all experts in this field, talking about, about how they got into this topic and and how they, you know, kind of kind of engage the topic as, you know, studying as a graduate student up through it now as a professor. So uh, Juliana, tell me a little bit about your research how it's funded, and uh, and how you got into the topic. Thank you so much for having us. So my research focuses on how can we get children to eat healthier foods. And my research started about 15 years ago when I was working in um, public schools. And these were schools where the majority, about 90% of the kids, relied on school meals for about half their energy intake. And when I was in the cafeterias, we noticed that as the kids were getting in the lunch line, they would walk through, they'd get their items, and then they'd walk over to the trash can, and they'd throw out half their food before they even sat down. And so this was this moment of, oh my gosh, these food insecure children are not going to have enough to eat. And that's how bad the school meals taste. So ever since then, my research has focused on how can we get kids to actually eat the healthier foods? And I've had a lot of um, funding from the National Institutes of Health, from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Merrimack College has been wonderful about um, funding pilot initiatives for me as well. Um, So we've been able to do a lot of work on how can we get the kids to eat the healthier food, and then what are the implications for the children's academic success? So you've really focused on nutrition and and what kids eat and when they eat. Um, how, How widespread is the problem? So what we're focusing on right now, which has been getting a lot of media attention, has been the amount of time that kids have to eat. There are currently no federal laws for the amount of time that kids have to eat. And we're finding that some lunch periods are as short as 15 minutes. And what this means is that the 15 minutes includes the amount of time it takes to walk to the cafeteria, stand in the lunch line, and then go down to sit. So a lot of parents are familiar with lunch bags coming home that are only half eaten. Um, But what we're actually seeing is that kids who rely on school meals, they're the ones who are the most harmed by this because they have to stand on the lunch line the longest. And we find that kids eat significantly less of their meal when they have when they don't have enough time to eat. And we're seeing this across the nation. Oh, wow. And April, your work is a little bit around uh, kids and exercise and yep, and so uh, gaming, I think, right, if I remember correctly? <laughs> yes, we do. So tell me a little bit about that and how you get into that topic and sure. who, who funds you and stuff like that. Sure. So right now we're funded um, by a grant through Maternal and Child Health Bureau. Um, and what we're looking at is adapting an existing intervention that uses um, extra gaming. So this is video gaming with an exercise component on an Xbox. But we actually add a little trick to it, which is that we um, 
connect the kids to a health coach virtually through the Xbox. So they have weekly meetings. The other twist is that this has been successfully used in kids who have overweight and obesity, but we actually adapted it to work for kids who have a variety of different um, mental health challenges. So everything from um, generalized anxiety disorder and major depression to ADHD and autism. And the reason that we do this is because we know that exercise improves not just cognition, but also behavior in kids. Um, and we see a lot of improvement in socialization, the ability to stay in the classroom, work with teachers, other kids, if we can get kids moving. But we all know that that's not easy to do. So we try to leverage technology, make things fun, and kind of meet them where they are. And what we've seen is that the kids really engage in these types of um, physical activity interventions in a way that they don't, you know, uh, you know, with regular PE and things like that. So. Um, we're trying to reach them where they are, and I think um, institutions like um, the National Institutes for Disability um, and Living Research, or NIDLR as it's called, um, and NIH are really interested in finding these ways of connecting to kids and getting them active in a way that helps not just their physical health, but their mental health as well. Mental health as well. That's great. And, um, you know, this, the, the, the kind of the advent of technologies, the changes in gaming, I mean, it's, it's amazing what's happened. It's you know? unbelievable. I have a... My own son is, you know, uh, now 21, but I remember his first Wii, you know, was like this archaic machine, and now it's like, you know, wow. Yeah, it uh, presents a lot of challenges, though, because the kids know, right? So they're always interested in the latest technology. So if we bring an old Xbox in, they're like, mm, yeah. <laughs> this isn't going to cut it. So we have to stay up, and that's where I use my kids as guinea pigs because yeah. I'm like, how good is this game? Do you like this game? <laughs> yeah, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's fun. Now, Kyle, you've done some great work over the years and and um, um, with the YMCA's actually mm -hmm. around the country and and working in some of the poor communities. Um, tell us a little bit about your work and 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 um, I'm very familiar with it. Uh, you were one of the first major research grants at the college mm -hmm. um, over the last really 30 years. You had a multi-million dollar Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant. But talk about that work and you know that work actually led to the creation of a school and all this other stuff. But talk a bit about your work and. And, and how you got involved in that and, and who funded that and how that happened. Yeah, thank you very much. And my work is very complimentary to both April and to Juliana. We're all interested in um, how do we keep kids well. And um, obviously physical activity is a big piece of that um, and very complimentary to the work Juliana is doing in nutrition. So we are focused on kind of an, an area that's um, very timely, as April mentioned, the uh, um, the use of technology. We go about it in a very different way. Through our funding, through Robert Wood Johnson, we were able to develop proprietary um, technology and in, in, um, data tracking of kids' activity. And in particular, we use mobile apps um, and other um, technologies where kids are able to kind of gamify um, their activity. So they um, run around, um, say, at school in a PE class, um, we track all of their activity on our uh, mobile technology that we developed. The kids then use that activity to actually turn it into academic lessons. So our initiative is called Active Science. It's bridging the gap between physical activity, technology, and science. So the kids are actually playing, using technology, being active, but actually turning it into academic lessons. Um, and we've had great outcomes over the past five years. Um, currently, the New Balance Foundation um, is funding active science. So today, about 2,000 children in the Lawrence Public Schools will use active science as part of their uh, daily physical activity. 
And then finally, we're actually integrating it, actually with the help of April, um, integrating that into science classrooms. So kids are actually um, using the technology within uh, their school day. So we've had really wonderful results uh, around this. Oh, that's terrific. And uh, it's amazing, 2,000 kids. It's really gone up a lot over the years. And uh, I remember we were talking about 10 when we first started. So it's, uh, it's uh, kudos to you. T- tell me a little bit about, um, and now I want to talk to all three of you about this. You know, there's a lot of myths, misconceptions, a lot of parents wondering what's going on, a lot of, you know, media kind of hyperness, a lot of, you know, good and bad foods out there. Tell me how we got here. Like, like you know, was it always this bad or is it just now we're paying attention to it? Is the new technology but But how do we get here? Because this seems to be a major topic now, right? And school lunches were always bad. Let's be honest, right? I mean, they were bad. They still are bad, I think, in many ways. But, but tell me a little bit about what's happened and how we've now kind of changed the conversation over the last couple of years. I don't know if you want to jump in, Juliana. So one of the things that we've seen is exactly as you said, that school meals have always been bad, um, especially from a taste perspective. And more recently, we updated the school meal standards to be healthier. And a really big misperception is that kids won't eat the healthier foods. And in fact, what we're seeing is that kids are eating just as much as they were before we made the standards healthier. What instead we're seeing is that there's still a lot of waste in schools, but we, they were already wasting foods before they made it healthier. We we're just suddenly paying attention to a pre-existing problem. So in fact, if you want to send your kids in with some lunch money to buy a school meal, they're a lot healthier and they're more likely to be eating them. How about your background? You know, a little bit about, you know, how do we get here? Yeah. So I think a lot of it has to do with screen time. So the average child spends about eight, eight to 10 hours per day Inter, uh, interacting with some form of screen time, whether it's um, in their mobile phone, whether it's a game, whether it's television and so forth. And so for the longest time, we tried to reduce child obesity by reducing screen time. Uh, that didn't work so well. And so our approach, really the three of us, is we're actually trying to turn the tables. If, if you can't beat them, join them. Can we use technology actually as a tool to promote healthy eating and to promote physical activity? And April, you arrived, saw you to give a presentation to some uh, some parents a couple of weeks ago. You talked about, you know, briefly in a five minutes of what you do. Talk, talk yeah. a little about, you know, how you think we got here and what, what you know, where we're going. I think one of the major problems from a physical activity perspective has been the misconception that children will do better in school the more time they spend on academic subjects. And the reality is, is that kids' brains need exercise and physical activity to develop appropriately, but also to function appropriately every day. So when you cut down on PE, when you cut down on recess, when you cut down on active time in schools and reorient that time towards academic subjects, we actually see a decline in um, well-adjusted behaviors in children, a decline in love of learning, um, a decline in cognitive ability. And so I think that's a real misperception that's hurt children over time. I think there's a recognition that we're all working towards now um, that that is the case. We're working towards changing that. Um, I think that the policy has changed in Massachusetts in particular. So there's a recognition that physical activity needs to be reintegrated into the school day. But I would say for parents, you know, when your child comes home from seven or eight hours at school, it's really important, even if they don't do organized sports, 
um, if they don't like playing sports, um, that they still get some kind of physical activity before they dive right into that homework and another couple hours of sitting or doing screen time activities um, because it's so important to their brains and it's so important to their um, social you know, ability and their happiness. Um, I know that as a parent myself, it can feel like you're always asking your children to do something they don't want to do. I usually use um, Juliana's studies because my kids love her um, to make them feel guilty about not eating healthy. Um, but I do think that parents need to continue to push their kids to be active after school, even if they don't necessarily want to be, because it's going to help them in the long run. That's great. You know, um, all of your work cuts across uh, income disparities, right? I mean, the reality is is that, you know, we live in a society where um, there's great inequities. Um, and you see that even in the, red, the redlining of poor communities and availability of even um, fresh food, uh, you know, and, and talk a little bit about, you know, the disparities between some of the poorest communities like a Lawrence and, and, uh, and a Newton, for example, right? you know, which a big difference. And, and really, what are the, the issues around access to food and access to, to exercise um, um, uh, facilities? And just how do, you, how do you overcome some of the issues, especially in the low-income neighborhoods? Mm-hmm. And, and what have you been doing in your work to kind of, kind of uh, help, help alleviate that, I guess, in some ways? So glad you asked that question. I actually had some graduate students the other day design an intervention around physical activity in schools, and they built this really nice intervention in class, but it was oriented around PE and recess. And they said, well, what do you do at schools where there's no gym? What do you do at schools where there's no recess facilities? And they were kind of shocked. You know, what do you mean there's a school with no recess facilities? But there's plenty of schools in Massachusetts, and we're a real leader. If you go other places in the country, there are plenty of school facilities that are completely lacking um, in opportunities for PE. Um, So I think we have to get creative. One of the really important things, and, and I think a great thing about Kyle's work in particular, is that it's scalable, right? So it can go into um, schools that don't have a lot of PE facilities um, very inexpensively and get kids active. Same thing for the work that we do. We actually put um, uh, exercise um, tech right into classrooms so that in schools that don't have gyms and don't have PE facilities, they can actually be active using inexpensive smart screens or mobile apps um, in the classroom themselves. Um, So I think while we're waiting for policy changes to be made, we have to be thinking about that, you know, in the moment, what can we do and be creative as researchers? Juliana, a little bit about those disparities. Yeah, so April brings up so many really good points. And I think about even my own kids' schools where they do have a lot of resources, but if there's a rainy day, they're inside their classroom and they're just sitting still during recess time. Um, So there really needs to be opportunities for children to be exercising throughout the school day. It's so important. And similarly, it's so important for kids to be having these exposures to healthy foods. So some really interesting research has been done around low-income families. And when they're in the supermarket, oftentimes they can't take risks. They need to buy foods that they can afford and that they know their kid is going to eat. So one of the really exciting things about the school lunch program now that they're offering healthier foods is it's giving these kids exposure to these healthier foods so that when the parents in the supermarket with the kid and the kid says, you know what, I've had that broccoli and I like it, the parent knows they can buy it and that the kid will actually eat it. Right now, 32 million kids eat school meals every single day. This is a huge potential for us to be giving these kids repeated exposures to these healthier foods. That's great. And Kyle, through your work, you know, I mean, you've 
really changed the city of Lawrence and some of the work you've done. Talk a little bit about what, what, what you see just from a, a disparity issue. Yeah, I think the first thing is child obesity. It's um, significantly higher. At one point, one half of kids in Lawrence and, and cities like that are, are above their healthy body weight. And um, we've been very fortunate uh, with your support, with the college's support. A big part of the solution has been our students. Uh, we've been able to um, have undergraduate and graduate Merrimack students who are actually running our program. So every day there's a Merrimack student in a Lawrence school or some other school or uh, a community um, where they are taking evidence-based programs and, and delivering those to, to kids in need. So we're, we're very, all three of us are very proud of that. The other thing we, I think we've been able to do is through partnerships. Um, partnerships has been a big part of our solution in Lawrence and other places. So you mentioned the YMCA, they've been a strong partner. Um, th through a combination or, or teamwork of Merrimack um, uh, teaming with the YMCA and the Lawrence schools, we've been able to run enrichment programs during the school day so that kids literally walk to the local YMCA. They have physical activity and physical education in the Y because their schools, again, don't have um, the space to do that. Um, we've also been able to run after-school programs, and most recently we've done some really innovative things around environmental outdoor education where um, kids are at one point uh, about 100 to 200 kids per day our bus to a YMCA camp in Salem, New Hampshire, and our Merrimack students serve as the counselors and, and run that program where kids get actually exposed to outdoor education, and, and that has been life-changing for so many children and for our own students. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, kids out in school all the time. I mean, the reality is take summer, weekends, breaks. They're probably only in school 60% of the time, you know, days-wise, a year. So what happens to the other 40% in their lives? Like, how do they continue to, even if you get them exercise, how does that happen? Because, you know, we all know when you exercise, you take one day off, you, you do lose something, right? Now talk a little bit about what, uh, you know, have you guys started exploring those areas, nutrition, you know, and the other 40% of their time that's not in school? Yeah, I'd love to build off what Kyle just said, too. Um, when we look at kids in the outdoors, there's an added benefit. The research shows it really clearly now. There's an added benefit to being outdoors in addition to exercising. So exposure is a key. So like Juliana said, if you um, get a child in the habit, in the rhythm of trying new things, that really sticks. Um, we actually, part of our um, grant from Maternal and Child Health was to look at um, the use of the Game Squad program um, this extra gaming home-based um, intervention with the health counseling, using that as a bridge over the summer to prevent summer weight gain. Um, and we saw that the kids used it really successfully. And these are kids with a lot of challenges. So um, if you get them in the habit, if you expose them, and if you build peer networks of other kids who are doing the same thing, we see a lot of success in maintaining these things out of school, like you mentioned, especially over the summer. Great. Now, a little bit, you know, so I want to switch the topic a little bit to Merrick. Right? And, and students in particular, and um, and the work you do to get them involved. So, you know, for our listeners who don't know, Merrimack is, uh, you know, a growing institution. The School of Health Sciences, I think, is four years old now. Um, I think both uh, Juliana and, and April are, were kind of started when we started the school itself. But it's had a big impact, uh, and it's growing. But you have about 800 students over there now. Talk about how you get students involved, both the graduate undergraduate level in the school. 
It's been so wonderful working with Merrimack students. They are all so wonderful. They're all so smart, and they're so hardworking. And it's been really nice prioritizing getting them involved in, in our research studies. So on any given study that I have, I usually hire about 10 to 12 students from Merrimack. So this past year, we were in Boston Public Schools collecting data. We were giving surveys to the kids about how hungry they were still at the end of the school meal, um, measuring how much they were consuming in the schools. We were also out in fast food restaurants, and they were actually conducting interviews with families who were there eating in the restaurants at the time. Um, the year before, we actually hired about 12 students to help with a feeding trial. This was up in Lawrence, where we were actually providing food insecure children with healthier foods. And so I got to train the students, how do you actually make these foods? How do you measure how much kids are consuming? And then what was really fun was being able to t um, train them to actually administer cognitive tests as well, to see do these foods lead to improvements in the children's cognitive functioning? Oh, great. And Abe, how about you? How, how do you get students involved in your work? Yeah, we're so lucky. We have undergrads and grads here, so our grad programs are really growing. Um, and at the School of Health Sciences, we offer something called a graduate fellowship. So I take about three grad fellows a year, um, and they work with our research partners. So we have partners at Louisiana State University, at Tufts University, uh, and Uni uh, University of Massachusetts Medical Center. Um, so they work with all of our research partners to collect the clinical data. They train the parents on the use of the different equipment that we install in the home. They work with the kids and they do a lot of the um, what we call process surveys where they sit down with the kids and interview them about how it's going. We get their feedback and we make adjustments. And what we've seen is that's really led to um, some amazing employment opportunities for our grad students when they're leaving because we have all of these partners that are really impressed with Merrimack students and they're getting real world, you know, when they go out with Juliana into the field and they're, you know, doing executive function testing or when they're working with me with kids who have mental health challenges, they're getting real world experience that's so, so helpful to their professional development and employers are recognizing that. So last year, my three grad fellows actually landed jobs before they finished school. Um, one is at Children's Hospital, um, one is at South Shore Hospital, and the other one is at Halloran Consulting. Um, and I've been so impressed with them. They've they've really stepped up and, you know, we're, we're lucky here to have undergrads and grads that participate in the research at all levels. That's great. And, and how do you see students getting involved in the future? I mean, research is a growing part of the institution, right? For those who don't know, you know, as we uh, plan for the future, I think becoming an R2 institution is probably one of our big goals, and people want to know what that is. R2 is a kind of a research uh, semi-intensive institution. Now, we're not going to be a Harvard or Yale, but the reality is, is we've recruited over the last 10 years probably 80 to 90 top-notch faculty who are bringing research with them, who come from research institutions, and they're really integrating in a, kind of almost like a makerspace kind of way the undergraduates, the grad students with their academics, with their research work, and really creating a nice combination. Where do you see that all going as an institution? Yeah, I think one of the ways is that exposure. As you said, we're actually getting undergraduates first, and they get a taste of research, and they'll either continue on with us or other places. I know one of Juliana's students is actually um, now applying to a PhD program after getting her master's program or master's degree at uh, the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, and there's many others. I think exposure at the undergraduate. Um, and the other nice thing about that is students actually get course credit. So they can do a directed study, they can do uh, an independent project, they can do, as you mentioned, at the graduate level as well. There's other mechanisms. So I think that that's really the big part. 
Um, the other thing the institution is doing that's really having a major effect is utilizing the um, at least the early part of the summer. So we have something called the Sakowicz program, as you know, and um, have supported. And that allows students to really dive deeper when they have more time in the early part of the summer. And the grant pays for their housing. It gives them a summer stipend. Um, it allows them more time to really work um, in an in-depth level with a faculty mentor. And um, that's been a tremendous um, opportunity for students to get exposed to research. Now, how did you all get into this? I mean, Giuliana, you went from Italian studies at Emory to <laughs> your doctorate at Harvard in, 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 in public health and nutrition. Um, April, a little bit simple of a path, but not that simple. Environmental Earth Sciences at Hopkins to uh, nutrition and obesity epidemiology at Harvard. And Kyle, you're the probably the most in the lane. Uh, you went from biology, biological sciences, to uh, applied anatomy and physiology at BU. Talk a little bit about how you your paths to these topics. I mean, you know, you were undergraduates one time, and uh, and I think for a lot of our listeners, they're always trying to figure out how do people get to where they are. I always get the question like, you know, if you ask me at twenty at twenty, was I going to be a college president? And most people thought you I was nuts, right? You know, I didn't think of that. But tell me how you got from where you were to how you got here a little bit, April. Yeah, I always joke that I'm I'm like the one that they always invite to all of the graduate student seminars to talk about this because, you know, students, for good reason, they think, oh, you know, I'm getting a degree. I should know exactly what I want to do. And the reality is, is that until you get your feet wet, you never know. So I started out in environmental science and engineering. I spent about five years in that field, um, became deputy chief of staff at uh, the Department of Environmental Protection. Um, and that was really a public health oriented field. So that's where I got interested in public health. Um, but I also was a competitive athlete. So I was a long course triathlete um, and I was an endurance sports coach. So those things came together when I started working with families through a foundation called the Tri-Rock Foundation, which is tri-racing for our kids. And it was focused on um, childhood obesity uh, and reducing that um, by giving uh, kids the opportunity to learn different skills like swimming, biking, and running. And I started to notice that more and more of the kids getting involved had diagnoses like ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, autism, um, uh, generalized anxiety disorder. And there was really nothing in the literature about how to help those kids. Um, so I did what any self-respecting um, interventionist would do. I went back and did my doctorate um, and did my dissertation on exercise and nutrition interventions to improve um, behavioral health in kids with a variety of different mental health challenges. So I've loved every step of the journey. And I think, you know, you learn so much. I didn't know how much I'd love teaching until I was doing my dissertation and got the opportunity to teach. Um, and so each job that you have gives you another step on that path and, and really helps you discover where you're going. And, and it's been a wonderful journey. And Giuliana, you looks like you should have spent time in Italy here. Um, <laughs> how did you get from uh, Italian studies to nutrition at Harvard? Yeah, so I had a bit of an unconventional path. Um, and it's in part because I actually didn't have the opportunities like students at Merrimack have. We didn't have a school of health sciences. There was nothing even remotely close to health or nutrition in my undergraduate program. So I actually had to create my own. And what I ended up doing was studying international health. And I combined that with Italian studies. And I did my thesis on adolescent 
adolescent obesity in Italy and soda consumption. So they funded me to go over to Italy, um, and I looked at how much soda kids were consuming, and then I looked at um, how much weight they were gaining. Um, and while I was actually spending time abroad, I, I read a book um, by a famous professor at NYU. I didn't realize she was famous, and I, I sent her an email and said, this is the best book I've ever read. And it was a book called Food Politics. And she said, thank you. Do you want to come work for me over the summer? And I didn't, and it was life-changing. And that's one of the things that I tell my students is that you can't just wait for things to fall in your lap. Sometimes you have to, to reach out. And sometimes you may not get that same response that, yes, come work for me. But, but reaching out to people to make these connections, I think, can make a really important impact on people's lives. And then what I ended up doing from there is I, I worked for the Centers for Disease Control. And that's where I started to realize you know, where I was really interested in, in public health. Um, I came up to Harvard for my master's, and I actually had another student approach me and say, would you like to work on this program that I'm doing where I'm redoing school meals? And I thought, sure, why not? I'll just try it out. And I fell in love. And this is what I've been devoting my life to now. And again, I tell my students, have as many experiences as possible. This is why I get students involved in my research so they can see, you know, what populations am I interested in? What am I really interested in, in impacting? Um, what are the type of things that I don't like? Because that's equally important. And one of the things that Merrimack does is has these experiential education opportunities for students so they can figure out what they can fall in love with. That's great. And Kyle, how about you, your story? Yeah, I would say similar. This is, was not my chosen path. Uh, I think that's a theme that uh, many people in higher education find. Um, I was heading more towards a, the medical school um, physician route and uh, stopped along the way at BU and, and started studying exercise science and said, well, this is fabulous. I can combine my interest of exercise, like, like um, April said, with physiology. And then um, during the last part of that um, program, I got this call to, they were looking for someone to come teach a course at, at, at UMass. And um, I was a poor doctoral student, said, sure, I need the money. I'll go teach, uh, I'll go teach this class. And so then I went over and then I left 20 years later. So eventually I figured it out. It was a very long course. Um, but I, same thing, I had no idea how much I would love teaching and, and combining that with an academic career in, in research. And, and now very similarly, my pathway was not around administration and, and being a dean and, and now a vice president. And, and it's, it's really, it's, it's just not planned, but you try to use the skills and your experiences and your, your life experiences. And, and um, my, my greatest advice to students or, or those interested in every little experience is going to lead somewhere. And so um, that, that's really, I think, for the three of us, what you're seeing is sometimes it's, and most often it's not well planned out, is that one experience is leading to another. I want to get to my last question uh, for the day. Um, but I think it's the most interesting question is, um, where do you see your work going in five years? What, what do you, you could look to the future, April. What do you see in five years for your work and, and kind of the impact you have in your work? Yeah, so I actually just completed a visiting fellowship um, at the Martino Center for Imaging um, with MGH and MIT. Um, and I see the future really being um, us being able to use what's called um, functional MRI imaging to understand exactly how the interventions that we're using are changing brain function in kids so that we can help parents make the changes that matter 
and do it in the increments that are realistic and doable. Um, it's basically like, you know, almost in drug studies, right, how we look at dose response. We're able to do that now because of new technology and new computational technology that allows us to analyze all of this different imaging data um, and do it in real time so that we can actually have kids exercise and then understand how their brain function changes. So I think that's the real, um, the real future in five years and then looking beyond that, leveraging that new data, that new science into um, really, really effective physical activity exercise programming that helps kids with mental health challenges actually use less medication um, and function um, better in their daily life and their social lives. That's great. And Julianne, what do you see your research in five years? What do you, what do you hope happens? So my research really focuses on policies. And what I really hope is that we can continue to create policies on the state and federal level around children's nutrition to make it that much easier for parents to be able to have their children eating the healthier foods. So some of these policies may be around the amount of time that kids have to eat lunch in schools. Some of it may be actually industry policies. We're doing some research in fast food restaurants. Um, and it's fascinating figuring out, you know, how do kids actually make these decisions when they walk into a fast food restaurant? And how can we help them make the easier decision and that be a healthier one. So really focusing on how can we have really high impact change at the state and federal level around children's nutrition policies. And do you find right now that the um, kind of the rhetoric, you know, the kind of the, the resistance to change is, is strong right now? So I think that there is some low-hanging fruit, and I think that everyone can get behind, which is around how much time kids have eat in the lunchroom. Similar to what April was saying before about how exercise really benefits kids academically, we're starting to realize that when kids have enough time to eat and eat healthier foods, that benefits them as well. And this is something that everyone can get behind. Yeah. What what causes the 15 minutes? Is, is, it, um, is it teacher policy? Is it curriculum policy? Is it, I mean... There's eight hours in a day, I'm going to say roughly, right? I mean, it seems 15 minutes is not a long time to eat. It's I mean, not, and, and it's not enough time for kids to eat. And what we're seeing is that because there's no national or even state policies around this, we see huge differences in schools, even within the same district. So we see some schools that have 15 minutes and some schools have 30 minutes. And this is something that I actually noticed within my own school district last year. And I actually, I worked with our superintendent, I worked with our principal, and now our kids have 25 minutes to eat lunch. So this is something that parents, if they're feeling frustrated, they can actually do something about even within their own schools. That's fascinating because, you know, under employment law, you require for eight hours to give a half an hour off. I mean, it's the law. Like, it's ingrained in our entire society. I mean, they are really going to work, aren't they? Yeah, you exactly. Know, I mean, school's hard work. Last time I checked, I mean, I, but I think that I think jumping in there, I think that it's the same idea driving the diminished time for lunch as physical activity. It's like, you know, more class time, more, you know, you know, academic focus. And I always tell parents to go, if they can, shadow their kids through a day at school. You will never be more exhausted than when you get home oh, from a day at school with a, your middle schoolers. I got a 20 year old, I'm like, this is nuts. It's, it is crazy. So giving them more time to eat, giving them a little bit of time to relax during recess is only gonna benefit them. Yeah, what have we done? I mean, you know, I mean, we all work in a college, I'm a college president. I see the mental health issues, they're huge, right? Huge. They, they come with them, right? You know, they, they just don't disappear. They don't disappear the rest of your life actually. And, and you know, you don't get these issues today you show up on college, right? right. I mean, they started years before. What, you know, nutrition, exercise, wellness, you know, this whole movement towards mindfulness, all the stuff, right, that's going on. 
Um, you know, what do you think has just created, you know, I think five years down the road from now, what do you think has just created this kind of uh, kind of a craziness about about academics and, and, and achievement and, you know, you got to get your, your best job as your first job and it's kind of nuts. Um, what, how, does, how do you see that in your interactions with parents and kids, even at the young age, kind of the stress now of life? Um, and it hasn't really changed that much life, just we've made it more complicated. Uh, talk a little bit, just, you know, as we, as we wrap up here, a little bit about that craziness a little bit. I see social media as playing a huge role because even I think the tide has begun to turn with a lot of parents where even parents are like, listen, your life is not about your college choice. Like we have time here and yet kids are still so anxious about it. And it's because they're surrounded by messages of, you know, this is what's important. You know, this is what I got on my SATs. This is, you know, this kid is valedictorian and so on and so forth. And so it's kind of taken on a life of its own. So I think we are going to have to start working more with kids at earlier ages to manage some of those expectations around social media and manage their social media use a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up until I was 30 years old and I had a great life. So I don't know. I wish more kids would do that. I mean. It's mm-hmm. easier. I don't know about you guys, but it does get simpler. Kyle, a little bit about, you know, wrap up here. You know, where, where do you hope your work goes? I mean, you have a different look, role now. You know, you're, you've are you become an administrator, you know, a big wig in the, the, the big office. But but tell me a little bit about what you, you know, uh, you know, it never leaves you, your research work. It's always something you've done. I mean, I, I even, you know, for my work 20 years ago as a professor, it's still in my soul. I still think about it a lot. It drives a lot of my behavior. Talk a little bit about how that, you know, as a leader, how the work you've done and now, not just the research itself, but actually the, the changing of people's lives. Yeah. How does that affect you? Well, you know, I hope it'll live on um, through great faculty like the two that have joined us today. And there's others, Jessica Peacock and others in health sciences and in communications, even with the technology and all across campus. And I think our young faculty that we've recruited um, to come here to Merrimack are really going to help all of our, these this type of work. I think it also become more interdisciplinary, which will find even new legs to it. So I think that's one of the big things. I think in terms of the stresses, too, as April said, a lot of it's driven by technology. I'm hopeful uh, that we can harness that technology. Um, you look at from iWatches to wearables to mobile apps, um, that we'll be able to use that technology and send messages out um, to students about time to you know, take your heart rate time for breathing. We can use that technology in a positive way. And then finally, we go back to um, the basics. So some of our work that's around the outdoors and um, the environmental studies programs that we have on campus and learning about how to harness that technology. So all of those opportunities, all of that together, I think will be very positive for us. And I think Merrimack will continue to be a very big player, not only locally here in Lawrence, but I think with, with the faculty we have nationally and internationally, I think Merrimack is well positioned to really lead the charge in this area. That's terrific. Thank you. Well, I want to thank everybody coming in today. It was a great conversation, short conversation, but but I think uh, informative for our listeners, and I appreciate your time and energy, and, and just congratulate all of you on your great work. I mean, it's amazing to watch and see as the president of Merrimack College, our young faculty, our senior faculty, what they've done. I mean, I see the impact in Lawrence. I see the impact in schools, and uh, I'm proud of all of you, so thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. And that's it today, folks, for a podcast with the president. We're looking forward to talking to you next week. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. 